Hello, I'm Adam Durrell, and welcome to the Account Experience Podcast, which is dedicated to professionals at the intersection of growth and B2B customer experience. Today, we have a very special guest. Yes, it's the father of Net Promoter. It's Fred Reicheld himself. I'm so excited to get a chance to speak to him, and we'll get to that in a moment. But just before we do that, um, I'd like to get into a little bit of my history with Fred. Um, because I've been working with Net Promoter since February 2004, when I look back into my annals. It's ever since I read about it in the Harvard Business Review. And, well, I became a true believer in the whole process. And later, we, I even founded a company. That's right. Customer Gauge was founded to help companies grow by monetizing Net Promoter. And as we've evolved over the last few years, we've got more specialized in the whole B2B part of it, with key account management especially, where we find that NPS really plays a really important part of this process of improving growth. And, you know, on a personal basis, I first met Fred when my comic strip version of the Ultimate Question book caught his eye. And now I try to catch up in the flesh once a year. Uh, and if we can, at his beautiful Cape Cod home. Fred's a longtime partner in Bain Consulting. He's now advisory partner and a Bain fellow. His new book is out at the end of November. It's called Winning on Purpose. And I guess those in the Net Promoter business are going to think of it as Net Promoter 3.0. So I can't tell you how happy I am to get Fred on to talk about his book for the first time publicly on the Account Experience Podcast. Welcome, Fred Reichelt. Fred, hello. Welcome to the Account Experience Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Adam. Um, so I'm just going to get straight into this. I started using Net Promoter in February 2004, and I think it had been around a little bit before then. So by my calculations, Net Promoter is 18 years old, just coming into adulthood. Yeah, um, and I, you know, it, that's a good thing. It's sort of, a, it, it's still a little, a little bit a teenager, um, not quite grown up, but, but uh, pretty close. Well, why don't we talk about that? Perhaps if you can, I'm assuming everybody listening to this knows a little bit about Net Promoter, um, but maybe you can just recap about how it came into being. I'll go to the, the very beginning. I uh, Early after I joined Bain & Company, I saw companies who were far outperforming the competition and, and you couldn't explain their success through classic strategy principles, which I'd learned at business school and, and the early years at Bain. The, the accounting was confusing. And it finally occurred to me that these companies earned the loyalty from their customers and employees. And that flywheel of customers coming back for more and bringing their friends and inspiring employees because they knew they were doing something meaningful, look, the customers are actually responding to it. That was the core of a, it really was a different uh, paradigm of what made businesses tick. And I initially launched into, I was trained in economics, so I thought the loyalty economics were cool then tiny changes in retention rate would explode differences in profitable growth. But pretty soon I started wondering, well, how is it that these companies earn loyalty? It's not through gimmicky marketing programs and loyalty schemes. It's, it's, it's not through uh, anything I'd seen in textbooks. And so I, I started thinking, well, if this is going to become a science, yeah. we have to measure it. And retention rates is not sufficient. And that's where this need for, I need a metric of have I touched a customer in such a way that they want to share this with a loved one? And that, so the net promoter score came out of the recognition that 
hmm, retention is not good. I need a, a indicator of success or failure. And boy, when someone recommends you enthusiastically, that seems like the best, uh, the best thing around. Well, I'm going to touch on that later because you even dive into that in your new book about why this is an act of love. I mean, I was actually quite, I, I was blown away actually by how much love you speak about in this book. It's kind of strange for a business book. But, but um, let me segue into that by talking about, you had a different name for Net Promoter when it first came out. Uh, that was also a surprise to me. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, had, I, I have a philosophy that the best businesses are communities where people are treated right and, and the objective function is to enrich the lives you touch. And that's a pretty high-minded approach, but that's what these loyalty leaders, the net promoter leaders are, are doing every day. They're living a set of ethics. They have a moral compass that is pretty close to that religious, almost religious notion of love thy neighbor as thyself. So for me, Net Promoter was, when I was originally thinking of the name, I said, you know, it's when a company or, or a team or a person touches a customer, have they enriched the life or diminished the life? And so I, I originally thought of calling it Net Lives Enriched. Yeah. And, and I wish I had in some, you know, hospitals, there are a lot of businesses that are important in their lives where enriching lives really resonates with the employees much better than promoter detractor. I thought, oh, you know, net lives enriched is just too soft and lovey-dovey. You need something that promoters, that's what you want in a business. Those are truly assets. They're coming back for more, bringing their friends, making, promoting your success. Yeah. And maybe that was why it spread so fast and so far. But I sort of wish I'd called it net lives enriched and stuck with that. I think it's wonderful, but I, I think one of the things that works in me about net promoter is you can think about a promoter and a detractor. And when I when yeah. I explain it to people, I'm like a promoter is a, like an evangelist, and a detractor really is like almost like a terrorist blowing up value in your business. <laughs> right? But um, but but and, and I don't know what you would have put at the end of the scale for net lives enriched. But it's a it's a fascinating thought to to really put it in people terms like that. It's a good point. Although I I remember sitting in a cab, sort of pondering these various names: net advocacy score, net fan score, and. And promoter was sort of winning in my head, but then I had this image of that fight promoter that used to work for uh, Muhammad Ali and some of the great fighters, and his hair was just crazy. And I thought, promoter—that's that's just not a good name. But I, you know, I I settled. Now let's um, let's talk a little bit about how Net Promoter has evolved. So, you know, as we discuss Net Promoters now, now just coming out of its teenage years. Um, how have you seen it evolve over the years? And has digitalization changed, changed the way you think about it? Yeah, digitalization is awesome. Um, there, are, there are people who say just the opposite. Oh, Net Promoter is less relevant in the digital age. And I think, my God, are they the stupidest people I've ever met? <laughs> this is crazy. Digital is just this awesome opportunity to measure this effectively and to delight customers. Because in the reconceiving of the whole customer journey, there are so many touch points and opportunities to really shock and amaze customers with wonderful, thoughtful, kind, caring innovations. This is like, you know, this is the age of net promoter. And, and the evidence is clear the, the Warby Parkers and Pelotons of the world that are digitally on the you know, cutting edge, they are heavy users of, of net promoter and continue to stretch it in this open source movement. So I, one thing I should mention is open source. That was 
probably the biggest strategic choice. We talked about naming it. And I thought naming was the most important choice. That was not. The most important choice was going with an open source mentality where practitioners could use this, experiment with it, you know, change it, modify it. And it just, it, the innovation and the insights exploded. Um, and I'm, now I, I, I read in Fortune last year that over two thirds of the Fortune 1000 use Net Promoter. That never would have happened if, uh, if we made it a black box, you know, we have to pay us to use, pay Fred to use this thing. That, that might've made me rich, richer, <laughs> but um, I, I, I'm, I'm rich enough. Well I, well, I think it really enriched your life. It's certainly, you know, I really think about it as a, as a real gift to the marketing community. Look, I've been in marketing for years and I've always searched for common metrics. They, they, they don't really exist in, in, in my world. So that's why I was so excited about Net Promoter. I love the fact that you made it open source, but as you say, giving people the opportunity to tinker with it, well, that's had, that's also had its pros and cons, right? It has. Um, like any open source movement, the negative is you lose control of it and, and people do stupid things, well-intentioned, but, you know, just the, inimical to the core philosophy of Net Promoter. And if, if the, my core philosophy is to treat people the way you'd want a loved one treated, that's the key to a good life. It's the key to a good business. Net Promoter measures that. But then so many people, uh, probably like you in marketing, and they've been just dying for a more reliable statistic they could hold people accountable to. So they've, they've turned Net Promoter score into a, a key performance indicator, and they link it to compensation of frontline employees and get people into trouble if you're in the bottom decile or bottom quartile, yeah. which destroys it. They, they don't, it's well-intentioned, but every time I've seen this happen, when you link that promoter score to someone's bonus, um, anywhere near the front line or touching of customers, they start caring more about the score yep. and they could, and not about what that feedback might teach them about how I could innovate ways and learn how to serve my customers better. Um, so do not, and that was, and, and I, I think most people do it. So I would, in the book, I, winning on purpose, I say at the beginning, I think most people are abusing and misusing the system. They're, they're making this cancerous decision to link it to compensation at the front line. Yeah. They probably see it work for a short period because you get people's attention when you link it to their compensation. But within a year or two or three at the outside, it essentially destroys itself. And you get begging and pleading for scores and, and every, every survey has uh, on the answer box. And by the way, in our, in our company, only a 10 is a passing grade. And, and, and don't get me into trouble. I'm just the important, poor employee. Don't give me a six or a seven because it's really the rest of the company that's messing this up. I'm here to help you. And it, it's a waste of the customer's time. It's a waste of the employee's time. It diminishes the credibility of net promoter. You know, it's just bad, and 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 there we are. That that's the downside of an open source. No, I I totally agree. I think that you've really put your finger on it. It's the it's the targets of Net Promoter Score that drive terrible habits. Um, and where I've seen it really work in companies when they target response rate to get more responses in, and also really have a culture of accepting it and and making sure that they answer the customer. But that's maybe a whole different thing we can talk about. Um, 
let, let's get back to your book. The new book is called Winning on Purpose. Um, why Winning on Purpose? I sat back. I had the advantage of a cancer diagnosis that put me in uh, off the, uh, I was in, in bed and other uh, uncomfortable places for a long time, but it gave me time to think. And I thought, why is it that the world doesn't see this, that the golden rule is the core to great business? And Andy Taylor, that, you know, where did, where did Net Promoter come from? Well, I watched the system that Andy Taylor was using at, at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Mm -hmm. It was a two-question survey, very high response rates, linked it to frontline branch learning, and um, it was brilliant. And I, I just, you know, we looked for a, the question that was more universal but essentially it was just taking Andy's insight. And, and, and just for the re for listeners that don't know this, Enterprise was a tiny little leasing company in St. Louis, Missouri. And Andy grew that to the largest car rental company on earth, the yeah. biggest fleet of privately owned cars on earth as a private company. So he's generating so much cash to, to finance this without ever going uh, public. And, and when I ask him why, Andy, how'd you do it? He says, Fred, there's, there's only one way to succeed in business. You, you treat your customers so they come back for more and bring their friends. And you feel, duh. But the insight was he measured it. And none of the other companies I knew were measuring this idea. And he also told me, Fred, when, when, you get it, when someone is unhappy and you're the leader of a company, your name's on the door, you've diminished their life. It hurts your reputation. So when I go to bar barbecues and, and neighborhood picnics and I overhear people saying bad things about how they were treated in an enterprise branch, it reflects on me personally. And I think that notion of this is your reputation, it's your impact on the world, are you making it better, or are you, you weakening it? That was the inspiration behind Net Promoter. But very few people get the idea of the moral compass. So you ask why winning on purpose? Because these great businesses that do earn the highest net promoter scores, they have a leadership team that considers their primary purpose. The reason this business exists is to make our customers' lives better. And I came to recognize that was a minority point of view. We surveyed, at Bain, we surveyed two, over 200 executives around the world and, and asked them, what's the primary reason your company exists? Um, most of them said, Oh, it's either shareholder value, maximize shareholder value, or be a great place to work, or the the this this uh, bloating black hole of uh, balanced stakeholderism. You know, this this hazily defined. <laughs> we have to be good to everyone, which it's sort of true. Obviously, you got to treat everyone right, whether they're a supplier, an investor, an employee. But who who do you exist to serve? customers that's that's why companies exist and if you don't put customers first you'll never win and and we found that only 10 percent of executives today believe that customers should come first that the primary purpose of a business is to make customers lives better and i was just stunned by that and and so the book winning on purpose it will show not only that that's a good idea there's pretty powerful evidence that's the only way to win in business I, I was fascinated by this. When I also read that stat, I was really blown away by the by that 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 only a minority of companies, twenty percent of them around, were thinking about putting customers first. But as I read through the book, I was thinking another title for it could be this is the dawn of I don't know customer capitalism. 
Oh, that yeah, was really, that was almost the name of the book too. Okay, but, but I thought customer capital was a little highfalutin. <laughs> And, you know, I have a with Bain on my resume and Harvard Business School and Harvard College, and it's pretty easy to dismiss me as a fancy pants, you know, know nothing. So I thought something a little more <laughs> down to earth, you know, why do we exist? <laughs> I, I mean, I'd say the, the, the takeaway, the, when you think about this, this shift towards um, the customer, I was also struck by your point about how most companies are thinking about, I think you would call it Model T Ford era accounting, thinking about um, fixed assets as, as, the, as the key part of a, of a company's value. And yet the more, you know, the, you, you really explain this, that actually, of course, it's the customer relationships. And increasingly in an era of employee shortages, the employees behind this. So, so let's, let's go into that a little bit. Talk about what you think some of the, some of the new valuations could be really all about. Well, I, accounting really was developed for uh, have capital-intensive capital industries, the railroads and the steel companies, and it has evolved very little since. So when you get into a company, take Bain & Company, a, 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 a balance sheet for, for Bain is just a stupid waste of time. You sort of have to do it, but in a pure services business, it makes no sense at all. And then you get into a tech business or a SaaS business, and standard P&L and accounting or balance sheets are just, why do we have to do this again? Well, because Sarbanes-Oxley and there are these rules, we go to jail if we don't. But, but when you, uh, one of the best private equity guys I know, he says, you know, when we go in and we evaluate a business, the reason I hire hundreds of MBAs and I hire people like Bain & Company is, is because I have to take the accounting numbers and readjust them back into something that actually makes a difference the cash flows and what's driving cash flows. And, he, and that, that's a lot of work. And why do we make these entrepreneurs starting little businesses go through these semi-useless accounting traditions instead of doing what, you know, let's measure something that really counts. Who are your assets? It's your employees who are inspired to delight customers, yeah. or maybe it's their customers themselves. Let's keep track of those things. But that doesn't, you know, accounting statements don't have that stuff. How many employees do you have? That's not on the accounting statement. How many of your customers, what, you know, of your growth and revenues, how much came from existing customers coming back and buying more stuff and referring their friends? Oh, that's not part of the accounting statement. And I could go on and on, but there, we really need an upgrade to customer-based accounting. If customers the reason the company exists, let's get clear. Accounting ought to keep track of that asset. Okay, let's go into that then, because how does accounting keep track tr keep track on it? What, what are the what are the key metrics that the finance world should be thinking about to track these these new assets? Well, net promoter score. If you're really doing it carefully and appropriately, and not bribing, and it, you get apples to apples truth, net promoter is pretty good for that. But it's been so distorted, and so many people are using it for the wrong reasons, and so many companies are just reporting their net promoter score with probably not any appreciation for we got a 90 or, or, you know <laughs> that survey based scores and sampling and response bias and sampling bias unconscious bias oh i don't want to get my that employee in trouble i'm going to give you a 10 but i really think you're a 6 this stuff accumulates into um, useless data and now we've got hundreds there was a wall street journal article a year or two ago that just slammed this practice of reporting net promoter scores to uh, investors 
with no explanation of which customers did you survey and how frequently and what were the response rates and was this right after a transaction or some relationship uh, you know and the and the ceo they have no or the the investor relations guys they have no idea so i felt like we had to come up with a new metric that investors could trust and it could not be survey based it had to be cash flow accounting rigor audit worthy and and it became clear that uh, earned growth was the right metric i saw a bank in the us uh, first republic using something very similar and i felt like just like I saw Enterprise Rent-A-Car and I said, oh, they've got it. If I can just you know, make this a little more universal, we've got something that's killer. First Republic Bank was, was reporting to their investors, you know, we're growing at 15% a year and uh, that could make in a 3% loan growth market, you might think if you're an investor or a regulator, hmm, you're dropping your credit standards. You're really bringing a lot of risk into your portfolio by outgrowing the market. And, and that's then it's, it's the regulator mentality. It, it's not a bad one. But they said, this is not true because 90, over, you know, 90 percent of our growth is coming from existing customers who we know very well and people they refer. And they keep track of that. And when I saw that, I said, that's brilliant. How do you keep track of that? They said, well, when we bring a new customer on board, they, you know, they can't, you know, you have to put them on your records. We ask them, what's the primary reason you joined? And if they say referral, we, we learn what we can, but then we keep track of that. So they know for the referral generated book and how it performs versus all other acquisition channels. And that's what I think every company should have and, and will have if, if enough people read this book and talk about it because they're in growth and there'll be a Harvard Business Review article at the end of the year, just focused on earned growth as the metric. And, and it, you know, it's how much of your growth is earned through referral and how much is bought through sales commission and price reductions and advertising and promotion. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and my personal experience is when I, when I speak to big companies, almost all of the effort on um, reporting goes on how we're acquiring new customers. You know, like everything is in that space, pipelines, um, uh, conversion funnels, everything is there. And you'd say, okay, what are you going to do about retention? Uh, oh, well, we don't really measure that. You know, what's your retention rate? Uh, we don't really know. So there's got to be a huge shift in in businesses around the world to to get their heads around this, right? So so it's great that people are going to read your book, but then who's going to bring it to life in an, in an organization? Is it a, a lowly champion? Well, I, manager? You know, I, I, there's one chapter. There's a chapter that will get people's attention because I... Uh, at Bain, we have this philosophy of, you know, put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> and I have been saying that companies that earn loyalty and get this flywheel going of back for more and bring your friends, they are, the world undervalues that. And now that we measure net promoter carefully at Bain and in, in, in NPS Prism, a data business within Bain, I really have a pretty clear picture, industry after industry, who's earning the highest net promoter score. So whenever there's no client conflict, I invest in the company. And I've been doing that for 10 years. And my, my returns are more than triple the stock market over the decade. And there, there are very few private equity funds that come close to that. And there are no public mutual funds or ETFs that, that come close. And I think that, I mean, that's, that's a logical way to beat the market. And if, if, that doesn't, if that's not newsworthy, I don't know what is. 
This episode of the Account Experience Podcast is sponsored by Customer Gauge, the leading B2B account experience software that ties revenue to your experience data in real time to help you make better account-centric decisions that drive revenue growth. Quick question, what do you guys think is the number one reason B2B experience programs fail? Believe it or not, it's lack of C-suite buy-in. And in Customer Gauge's research with MIT, they found the quickest way to align yourselves with the C-suite is to actually align with what they care about most, which is revenue. That's why Customer Gauge is literally built from the ground up to maximize and track the revenue contribution from your experience program in real time. Companies like DHL, Anheuser-Busch, Heineken, uh, yeah, we get a good amount of free beer. One Login, Iron Mountain, H&R Block, Super Office, and Sugar CRM are already using Customer Gauge to maximize their growth by tying their programs to revenue. And with over $10 billion worth of account revenue actively being managed in Customer Gauge, yeah, that's billion with a B. They're the leader in the space. But maybe even more interesting, they found that once you get alignment with that C-suite, the needs of these B2B practitioners or the program champions are evolving too. In such a complex account environment, it can be really tough to measure and act on feedback quickly across multiple departments, divisions, or even locations. Luckily, Customer Gauge has you covered there as well. With account-native features that easily help you not only measure the feedback for multiple stakeholders in an account, but act on that feedback in real time. Because at the end of the day, if you're not empowering your frontline staff with the right insights to address customer issues, you're going to be dealing with a churn issue. It's not a matter of if, it's really a matter of when. Customer Gauge helps you distribute this experience data across your entire organization, regardless of department, regardless of location, regardless of division, all in real time. No manual spreadsheets or a team of analysts are needed. Customer Gauge's mission is to help B2B companies harness the power of account-centric growth to drive meaningful change in their businesses. And that's a powerful thing. If you want to see Customer Gauge in action, go ahead and check out customergauge.com and get a demo of account experience today. You won't regret it. So Fred, it, chapter five, which I think is really my favorite one because it's the one with all the graphs. Um, you talk about how you name this index and you've called it, well, I thought it was a folksy name at first, but actually I think it's really got some reason. So, so, so what's behind this index of yours? Well, I've uh, thought about what my life, my purpose in life was. And with Fred as a name, um, I, I was, it's sort of, I thought, well, it's foster recommendation, eliminate detraction. So that little acronym, uh, that's Fred. And since I invest in all the NPS leaders, um, I've actually got a stock index that, that I can report publicly. And, and so Fredzy, the F-R-E-D stock index, is what we, we publish in the book and show people, this is how you're more than tripling the stock market over the last decade. I mean, I began, I begin the book with evidence that greatness has been mystified. People think about greatness as financial greatness. We look through an accounting lens. I think greatness is lives enriched. So let's take this net promoter as a, a rough measure of how many lives enriched. And, and the people that I used as exemplars in the previous book, uh, like The Ultimate Question 2.0, I took every one of those who, that was a public company and just tracked over 10 years, what has been the total shareholder return? Those companies actually were five times the US median return. And uh, that's, that's shocking. And so greatness not only 
makes more sense to me using net promoter as a metric, it actually is truly a resilient investment strategy that crushes uh, stock market averages. And I, I believe will continue to until the market really understands the power of Andy Taylor's insight, that the only way to grow a profitable business is to treat customers so they, to love them, to, to love them so much they wanna come back for more and, and bring their friends. And, and I think I've got at least another 10 or 20 years of beating the market in front of me. I think you're right. I, I, I mean, I've been thinking about this for years about how you could try this. I think even you and I spoke about it 10 years ago about, you know, well, we should make an index to do it. So when you actually put it in the book, well, I'm not going to give away any spoilers because people have to read this. But the graph where, for example, you show where T-Mobile gives the yeah. best total shareholder return. I mean, it's 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 really astonishing. Really T-Mobile is a great example. Yeah. This was a company on its knees, ready to go bankrupt. And a new CEO came in uh, and, 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 and convinced his team, you know, we have the worst network, we have terrible service, we, we got nothing. All we have is a set of customers. And so the one thing we can do is love those customers better than anybody else. And, and he turned that into the best shareholder return over the last uh, rough, roughly decade. Yeah, and, and I just, I love the way that you put all the competitors there on a scale. I mean, for someone that loves graphs like I do, I, that those pictures in the book really, really speak volume. So um, if there's any way of- Yeah, I was, I was, you know, my, when I was in school, I was, I was going to get a, a PhD in economics. So I took all the advanced economics courses and I, I took the uh, statistics, the, the graduate level probability statistics stuff, because you sort of get it out of your way and it's a cheaper way to get a, a PhD. And then I- I lost interest in that, yeah. but all these critiques that that net promoter seems to attract from these so-called expert statisticians, you go, oh, police, those are so <laughs> lame and lack. Oh my lord, those are first grade insights. But it's also okay because you know you've got basically a system to beat the house in Vegas, as far as I can tell. You know, if you if you if you take it to a logical conclusion, if you can find a way to really understand earned growth and use net promoter maybe as a forward indicator of that. I think it's a fantastic um, investment thesis and that's really what- The evidence is on my side. It's only 10 years of data. Let's, um, let's pivot a bit because, you know, I want to get back into the whole lives thing. I mean, it is, reading the book, it is quite touchy-feely. Dare I say, it's almost a woke business book. Please don't get upset about that. But it's really yeah. about, I keep reading words like love in this. And I, and I was really, I was actually quite moved as I, as I went through the book. Um, you know, how, what's the best signal you get back from a customer that, that's, that showed that you've made their lives better? Well, if you're in front of them, you see the smile on their face, um, the look in their eyes. In most businesses, we can't rely on that anymore, especially as you move toward digital. So I found that uh, when when a when a customer behaves in a way that you you know they think that you've been remarkable, uh, that you've made their life better, the most reliable signal is they they want that experience for a loved one, for a friend or family member, and so legitimate you know not bribes, not not begging, but when they just on their own refer friends and family to that brand or to the to that product that's an act of love on their part. Not so much love for you, love for their family member or friend because they want to enrich their life by making them aware of this special opportunity. And, and so, you know, net promoter is, it's a net love score. 
I mean, talk about not getting acceptance in the business community if I'd started with that. NetLives Enriched is flaky enough, but it is an act, it's this notion of what makes people loyal. It, well, you don't trick them in, with fine print and bribes with loyalty programs. You, you act in their best interest. You love them and, and love in the sense of your happiness is a function of their happiness. I, one of the guys that joined Bain & Company about the same time I did is Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit. Yeah. And um, Scott went off after several years and, and uh, did his thing and built this great company Intuit. And when he was one of the, he was probably the first outside company, outside Bain to um, adopt Net Promoter because this philosophy fit so well with what he was trying to build. And he told me a long time ago, he says, Fred, we don't deserve a dollar of profit from a customer until we know that customer's happy. And I thought, now that is a highbrow. I mean, that is a, a wonderful philosophy for a business. And you would have dismissed him as an idealist years ago, but Intuit is just a crushing success story. I think the market value is 150, maybe 200 billion. It's a huge success through thick and thin, through software changing from shrink wrap stuff. And he was almost acquired by Microsoft. And then you go to the cloud and through all these changes, that philosophy of love, of we don't deserve a dollar of profit until we've made our customer's life better and we've solved their problem. That's the key behind this, that great businesses love their customers. I think the, it might have seemed um, flaky a few years ago, but if you think about the, the choices that millennials and Gen Zs have about where they work, it, it's more important than ever to believe in a mission. And I think that really does speak to to um, to to knowledge workers because it, it, you do need a you do need something to go after. So I really think this is resonating. Yeah, good people are not going to go commit their work lives to a place that embarrasses them or it's it's purely about making money. True. Or and, and if they're forced into that, they'll do it as long as they have to, and when they get enough money, they quit. So the insight, and I, and you're right. I think this new generation of young people, they are clear that they wanna have purpose in their own lives. And, and so that's the connection with the book, Winning on Purpose. You can't attract talented, digital, digitally skilled, young, energetic, top, top flight people, unless you have a purpose that energize, attracts them and keeps them energized. That, however, has led to a very fuzzy uh, understanding of purpose. And it's become, you use the word woke, I, I think, it's almost never a, uh, a positive. It's a pejorative word, and it, and it should be, because oh, I've got you know we've got all these cool missions, and this is we're committed to this. You know we're gonna end uh, racial uh, bias, and and we're going to uh, you know we're gonna fix all the problems in the world, and those are lovely ideas, and people should work hard on them. But in a business, if you don't love your customer. And, and rally around that, that very energizing notion as we exist to enrich the lives we touch, primarily customers. Yes, there's golden rule, we treat everyone in this community uh, the right way, but we exist as a community for customers. That's the only purpose that wins. And, and all these flaky uh, marketing schemes are, are so manipulative of, oh, what purpose du jour are we going to commit to that will make everyone love us 
there's only one purpose <laughs> that wins, and that's loving your customers. I, but I, I think this is this this really resonated with me. This because I think for me, there's implications for leadership changes. Um, you know, a, a world where you just go after maximizing shareholder value or capturing customers for the quick win to me seems um, quite an aggressive, male-dominated world, which doesn't you know certainly doesn't love customers. So. As uh, as it, it, is that driving a shift, or will the shift to a more diversified demographic make that? What, what are your thoughts on that? I think the shift has already happened. The, the, the reason that NPS leaders are crushing the competition and generating cash, you know, why is enterprise number one in the world? Why is Apple number one in the world? Why is Amazon number? There, <clears throat> there are a lot of very impressive successes who have committed to making their customers their their primary responsibility. I think earned growth and some of the things in the book will accelerate that, um, I hope, but it, it's, a, it's a paradigm shift. It, this idea of, you know, our financials, our, our, our accountability devices, they're the only audited information we have. People go to jail if they fudge those numbers. Yeah. And when I sit on boards of directors, that's what you talk about 90% of the time. And that's a big shift that, that has to take place. And it, in a different understanding, you know, when financials guide your governance, your bonus systems, your, your capital allocation, you can say all the nice people things and love customer things you want. But if those are always the data that you're returning to for setting priorities and holding people accountable, you have a financial mindset. And I'm arguing in the book that has to shift and people have to think about uh, the world from a customer mindset. This customer capitalism is a pretty good name, but customers are the true asset and our, our, our behavior has to shift. And I think, um, well, what's the evidence? The evidence is if I love my customers and I do it well, shareholders are getting rich. Yeah. That's what the frenzy proves. But if you focus on shareholders first, your customers are not happy because that's that's where you get these bad profits. This is where, oh, I'm going to charge you 400% markups on refilling your gas tank for the rental car. And oh, if, if, if I am allowed to, I'll, I'll charge you roaming fees with your mobile phone that'll um, put you in the, in the uh, poorhouse. It, it, all these little gimmicks that are legal for the moment, but are abusive, they make sense only in a world where profits is purpose. And they make no sense in a world where loving your customer is purpose. Yeah. And I think I also took away, you know, in a world where cash has been relatively cheap or money's been cheap, it's, it makes no sense to focus on that. Um, moving, I mean, you, you, you speak very eloquently about looking a customer in the eye. This is very much in the consumer domain. But as you move into more business to business relationships, does the loving the customer relationship still work? And if so, how can you, how can you frame that in a way that works? In a, in, a, in a business relationship? Yeah, most people seem to think that uh, net promoter is primarily consumer. And, and it's, it could, that couldn't be farther from the truth. It started in a business-to-business -business mindset. At Bain & Company, a classic consulting to large, complex enterprises is where the idea came from because the, our business shouldn't exist today. It's just, it just was a little pipsqueak. You know, there were McKinsey and or, McKinsey and BCG and others were big and strong and successful. And Bain had a deep insight that only when you commit teams to make their clients succeed, both at a corporate level 
sort of a stock price financial success, but also humans that you're working with. You have to help their careers and help them be better people. Um, that is the core to success. And it, it, it made Bain a, a big, successful company. The, when I said only 10% of leaders in the world today think customer is the primary reason they exist, we did that same survey across Bain teams, frontline teams. Uh, Two-thirds of them think uh, making clients' lives better is the primary purpose that Bain exists. Not making our partners rich, not being a great place to work. Uh, by the way, Bain is number one on the glass door, uh, best great places to work. It's, it's, it, it's been number one four or five times in the last decade. It's certainly among the handful of best places to work in the world, in my opinion and thousands, you know, millions of other peoples. And it's not because that's our primary goal. Uh, and our, our people know it. They know our clients, our success is why we exist. And I think that's why it, what makes it a great place to work. How many of those great place to work lists have anything in their surveys about this is a company that enriches the lives of its customers? None. Yeah. It's just, it's, never, it's, how, it's how fancy are our fringe benefits, what's our compensation, um, how cool are we, how woke are we? And you go, wait a minute, that's all cool stuff, but that's the fringe. Yeah. The center, is this a community that treats each, each one another right and has, is committed to this uh, pr purpose of making our customers' lives better? Because that's what inspires good people. You know, you'll work hard. You'll, go, you, you'll crawl through the mud and, and have tough times. If it's worth it and, and enriching lives is, is worth it. That's a great way to end on that one. But let's find out what's next for you because you know, you've, you've backed with enormous amount of energy with this book, Winning on Purpose. What's the next horizon for you as, as, uh, as this starts sinking in? It's a great question. I think, yeah, Mr. Cancer is the, is the one that's going to determine that. If I can keep cancer under control, I... I think there are a lot of important things to, uh, to focus on. Uh, number one, I really would like to see earned growth become a reportable metric for all public company, for all companies. Something that not only investors deserve to understand, but it will help companies run themselves better internally. And it's something that Employees and prospective employees should be able to evaluate, is this the kind of place that I want to commit my life, you know, make my life's work? And there's a long way, you know, Net Promoter is almost 20 years old. It took 20 years to get that through open source and, and, and lucky things. Um, I, I hope earned growth can get to that same level because in many ways, earned growth is just the accounting twin of Net Promoter score. Yeah. Oh, that's and, a really nice way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a long way to go. I, I, uh, I'll, I'll keep investing and, and try to prove to people that, that this is a, a great thing. But I'll, uh, I'm open to suggestions. If you, have, <clears throat> if you or your listeners have opportunity or ideas, let me know. I'm always open to feedback. I, I think that's great. And that is actually a really good philosophy for life, right? Open for, speed, open for feedback. And we probably need to encourage companies to have a safe space for feedback in their organizations. But for me, if, if I take one thing away from Net Promoter, it's not the score. It really is embedding the golden rule in what you do in business. And in a way, it's so blindingly obvious, but 
And, and, oh, but if, if the golden rule were so blindingly obvious, I mean, I have a full section, you know, an entire chapter on the golden rule and how people don't really understand it. If it's such a powerful idea, I think it's probably the most important idea in human existence. It's certainly the gold standard uh, in human relationships. It, and yet, when you are actually treated that way, it's so noteworthy, you tell all your friends about it. It's actually quite uncommon. Yeah. So you have to resolve why, if this is such a damn good idea, is it so rarely put in practice? But maybe that's the point. Maybe the winners that put it into practice, these are the ones that deserve the customer love. And they, therefore, get Yeah, it. and I think leaders need to, I think they're, as you know from reading the book, leaders are responsible for building the community and the rules of engagement and how you measure success. Today, they they talk in, in golden rule terms, but they don't build systems and processes that are rigorous and help people fight against the current that's created by short-term financial metrics that overwhelm our, our thinking. So I think the, the smartest leaders, they recognize I need a, a set of management processes and measures and all these boring things that that uh, the accountants take care of for me. No, leaders have to grab control and say, no, accounting, we have to earn our cost. We have to return profits or we can't exist. But right now, because those are the only measures and processes that drive things, people get it confused. They think that's our purpose. No, our purpose is to treat one another with kindness and dignity and respect and to make our customers' lives better. Did you see the article in the Wall Street Journal recently? This restaurant put a sign in the front window that said, this is to customers, says, be kind or please leave. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, that is a brilliant leader. That is what all CEOs should think carefully about. Should they have a sign in their front window that says, treat people kindly with dignity and loving dignity and respect, or please leave? Because there's, there's five or 10% of the population that you want them out. They might be profitable customers. They might be great salesmen that look like they're making you a lot of new customer money. They're bad. And, and you got to find a way to, uh, to squeeze them out of your community. Or we're stuck in this game of uh, saying we are woke and we're still maximizing shareholder value in our hearts and, and souls. That's a wonderful way to leave it, Fred. Leaders that can inspire by giving out kindness and generosity. I really think it's, the, it's, it's such a great beacon of hope for us out there. And if you want to read more about this, Fred's book, Winning on Purpose, is out at the end of November. Fred, thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, I'm looking forward to speaking to you again. And maybe next time we can talk about the Net Promoter Manifesto, which is a whole chapter in itself. But, but once again, thank you for sharing your time with us. And I wish you all the success with the new book. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it.